I'm James Hahn II, and you're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast, brought to you by Red Wing. This is episode 64.5.1.5 episodes are my chance to speak with entrepreneurs, executives, and thought leaders from inside and outside the industry to hear their stories, what inspires their work, what culture drives their company, what innovations they're bringing to the oil field. My guest today is Bill Clough, President and CEO at CUI Global Inc. Bill is not your typical oil field CEO. After 14 years serving as a SWAT team leader in his hometown of Oakland, California, he was recruited into the federal government's Air Patrol Unit. When the promised three-week deployments extended into months, he moved into litigation to spend more time with his wife and new baby daughter. Over the course of 17 years, he grew his law firm into a successful practice with offices in Oakland, Los Angeles, and Hawaii. Bill stopped by Tribe Rocket Inc. studio in the Museum District in Houston, Texas, on his way back to the city he now calls home in Portland, Oregon. I'm from Oakland, California, born and raised. Oaktown. <laughs> yep. Oaktown. Oaktown. And did you go to college out in California? I did. I went to uh, the University of San Francisco and then graduated uh, with a law degree from Hastings College of Law, also in San Francisco. So that that would explain why you would also like to be a litigator, possibly? I actually was a litigator for almost 17 years. I had a very successful California practice. And how did you become an entrepreneur? You know, it was uh, through... uh, an accident, actually. I was uh, at the end of my legal career getting ready to retire, and I had made an investment uh, with a friend who had uh, introduced me to a number of investments and, frankly, done pretty well. I had given him a couple million dollars to put into a company that he said was uh, sure to succeed. It was a pre-revenue company. This was back in 2006 that had a very exciting, what appeared to be a very exciting uh, thermal management technology as I was getting to retire and, and uh, planning on using that $2 million as part of my retirement, he came to me in a panic explaining that the people we had invested in were great guys but had no idea how to run a business and that if we didn't get more involved, we would lose my money. <laughs> uh, that was not part of my retirement plan, so I came into this company originally as uh, general counsel. Um, we ended up uh, bringing in a... Uh, um, what we thought would be a very competent individual to run the company, uh, an ex-Nike executive who came in and actually started spending more money than we were making. At the time uh, that we replaced him, he was burning through about $800,000 a month in burn rate. I came in uh, as acting CEO when he was removed. Uh, that was in uh, late 2007, and I've run the company ever since. When I came into the company, it was doing about $19 million a year in revenue and had $41.5 million in debt. Now, are we talking about CUI Global right now? Well, we're talking about a, a the precursor company was called Waytronics, but it became CUI Global when we acquired um, the electronics portion of the company, CUI, in uh, Portland, Oregon. We took that company, though, in eight years, which I'm very proud of, and it wasn't me. It was the entire team. We took that company from what was effectively bankrupt in uh, 2008 to today doing approaching $90 million in revenue, effectively no debt. We have $7 million cash in the bank, and we just signed a contract with the Italians that's going to be worth somewhere between $60 and $100 million over the next three years. So it's been quite a turnaround. Yeah. I I mentioned before we we got on the air here about the old uh, NASDAQ, I think it was a CEO signature series that they were interviewing you, and 
there was still a heck of a lot of debt on the books. How much debt was on the books when you t- when you came in? There was $41.5 million in debt. It was um, amazing, actually, and the timing could not have been worse. It was an interesting time. We, we actually acquired the company and got uh, firmly involved in May of 2008. At that point, like I say, we were doing about $19 million a year in revenue, had $41.5 million in debt, but we had a plan. In November of 2008, we were going to go out to the equity markets, raise a bunch of capital, and pay off all the debt. Unfortunately, if you recall, in September of 2008, Lehman Brothers imploded, mm-hmm. and there were no equity markets to go to. In fact, there was nowhere to go, and we had a company. That was, was that, right around the end of my mortgage banking career. You, I'm very familiar. <laughs> yeah, you're very familiar with it. When I was an attorney, I represented a lot of mortgage bankers, and they, there were there were many fewer uh, after that 2008 debacle. Our problem was, uh, my personal problem was that, you know, we probably, if we had to do it all over again, should have filed bankruptcy and walked away. I was not prepared to walk away from my investment. So I put together a team that I thought uh, I could depend on and in fact could depend on. We really realigned the company, uh, verticalized the sales group, you know, streamlined the company. And over the next four or five years, really changed the way the company worked and uh, made it profitable. So let me let me also backtrack a little bit because in order to be able to lead an organization through such a difficult time like that, you must have had some leadership under difficult times in the past. And I believe you have a military background. Is that right? Well, it's, I, I was a police officer for 16 years, so it's it's quasi-military, if you will. But my experience really came from early on in my career. I was uh, an early a member of a special weapons and tactical group out of a San Francisco Bay Area department. And we um, developed really small unit tactics. And that uh, experience of approximately 10 years uh, as a SWAT fire team leader and then a SWAT commander, I then became a SWAT commander of a division in uh, the Honolulu Police Department uh, in the early 80s. That experience really taught me how to manage people under crisis circumstances. Um, When you have somebody shooting at you, um, you have to be able to depend on the team you're working with, um, and it has to be a dependency that you see in few other circumstances. So to build that team with the cohesive nature and the the need for trust and the dependent on each team member, it taught me how to build small teams and how those small teams could interact. I've applied that throughout my career. I applied it in my law firm, and I've certainly applied it over my years with the CUI Global. So you were you were effectively fighting the original cocaine cowboys out there in Honolulu and San Francisco. Yeah, Honolulu was it was more ice than anything else and in the San Francisco Bay Area it was really methamphetamine. We we had a huge trade of methamphetamine back then. Um, predominantly Hells Angels but others as well and so it was it was an interesting time to be a police officer. And so at a certain point you said, "All right, I'm going to go become a lawyer because I'm tired of being shot at." No, <laughs> interesting. It was a little more complicated than that. Actually, I was working, as I mentioned, as a SWAT uh, commander, division commander in Honolulu at the time that uh, TWA Flight 847 was taken uh, to Beirut, uh, hijacked to Beirut. Um, People may remember the pictures at the time and the pictures you see on the Internet are of the captain waving out the the window of the cabin with a gun uh, being held to his head. Following that, um, Reagan, who was the president at the time, reinstituted the air marshal program, except instead of being based around Cuban uh, hijackings. It was going to be based internationally. And he, he went out and sought uh, predominantly very high profile, um, very well-trained, experienced tactical team members from myself, 
others from Dallas, Texas, from New York City, from really all major police departments you can imagine. He recruited a very tight-knit core of uh, people who became uh, the air marshal uh, program uh, in the early 80s. Um, we were assigned, uh, I personally was assigned out of Frankfurt, West Germany, flow, flew all over the world from Frankfurt, but there was teams of us that would fly on certain uh, aircraft. We were told when we originally were deployed that it would be a six-week deployment, and then we would be in for six weeks, and that's how it would work. I had a two-year-old daughter at the time and a four-year-old son. My first deployment was seven months. I came back for three weeks, went out for another six months. The next With time, the I, government and mission creep. Are you telling me? Yeah, yeah the government <laughs> that never happened. The government and mission creep. So I came back to second deployment, and my wife at the time said, "You know, I, I can't really uh, live like this." And I said, "Well, hon, think of it this way: It's like you married somebody in the military. We'll be out for six months, in for six months." She said, "Number one, I didn't marry somebody in the military. <laughs> Number two, you're not in for six months. You're out for six months, in for three weeks, and back out." So I had to make a decision at that point. Was uh, you know my globe-trotting career worth more to me than my family? It was not. So I had always thought about going to law school. I applied to a number of different law law schools and was accepted by many of them. The one that I chose was Hastings, and I think it was a good choice. I ended up graduating there in 19- Hastings is <clears throat> in look, San Francisco. Yeah, yeah, in San Francisco. It's a UC um, campus. I graduated in 1990. Um, Opened my own law firm in 1991 and became very successful having offices in uh, L.A., San Francisco, and Honolulu for about 17 years. What kind of cases were you working in that 17 years? I did almost all plaintiff's personal injury and business litigation. I represented some very large um, movie studios, uh, but in business transactions, not in creative transactions. I I represented, for example, a company called InfoDisc out of uh, Taiwan that was one of the largest replicators of DVD um, uh, discs in the world. We worked for 20th Century Fox, for MGM, for uh, um, Universal. And then I represented a lot of complex personal injury cases. I represented, for example, uh, deep sea, uh, undersea divers, um, out of, largely out of Santa Barbara, but really all over the world. Um, developed an expertise in that. They're, they're Jones Act seamen, and so it's a very specialized area of the law. I actually argued in front of the U.S. Supreme Court in a Jones Act case. Um, so it was, it was something that was quite exciting and, and very fulfilling and frankly, quite profitable. It was, uh, something I enjoyed a lot. And then, so we know that, that the, the transition was, the first transition was because of the wife, if we, if you will. And this one that you, you went about, you were basically deciding to retire and then kind of got your money wrapped up in something and. You've been here ever since? Yeah, I, uh, yeah, that's, that's pretty much the story. And I, I tell people this all the time. What I spent four years as an undercover narcotics officer when I was very young and so acquired the ability to buy and sell narcotics, which is really very similar to buy and selling stock in the uh, stock exchange. It's the same motivation, I, I find, and that's fear and greed. Fear of not getting that deal that's the next Microsoft and greed that you get every penny that you can out of every investment. So I tell people this, my legal career, my police career, my career as an undercover narcotics officer all have prepared me to be a very, very capable CEO of a public corporation. And that's what I'm doing today. And one thing that really jumped out at to me in all the interviews and everything that, that I looked at to prepare for this is clearly you're not driven by that fear and that greed Company culture is something that's very important to you. Collaboration among teams, especially, is something very important to you. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, actually, we were talking before, and I think one of the the uh, cornerstones of my management style is to push down 
uh, and delegate authority. I want to make the people who work with me better because I've always felt that if I make them better, if I make them shine, then that makes me look good as well. Um, I think that to be a really good, um, capable manager, you have to make sure that the people you hire are, in some sense, better than you. People who are going to come up through the ranks who can, in fact, replace you if push comes to shove. And I've always prided myself on doing that, on bringing people along who I felt were capable, uh, bright, enthusiastic. I have a team now. Uh, they're predominantly young men and women who are you know, in their late 30s, maybe some as, as old as 40, but predominantly young men and women who are very enthusiastic, very talented, and frankly, bring a whole different form of, uh, of enthusiasm to the, to the table. Those are the kind of people that I think uh, are going to be running the companies in the future. And for me, I want to surround myself with those kind of people and give them the authority to make decisions, to push down that authority-making process. It's, we talked about it, um, the, uh, the ex-commander of the Special Operations Group in Afghanistan, a general by the name of McChrystal, wrote a book called Team of Teams. And he, in large part, captures the way I feel management should be done, and that is to push down authority so that the, the lower and lower you can get delegated authority, the more everybody can be on the same page working towards the same mission, the more effective and successful you'll be. How do you, it, that's, that's, first of all, testify, amen. Mm-hmm. I, I completely agree on everything that you say. It's one thing to say it, though. How do you create buy-in across your organization and make sure that each person that comes on board, because as much as, as, much as I guess, top 1%ers, top 3%ers in terms, of, in terms of performance, people that are always grinding, people that are always trying to push further and further, it's very easy for people like us, I would put myself in that category, that that strive for that egolessness, that strive for that level fiveness, if you will, of putting the best for the company <clears throat> above our ego. How are you able to nurture that within your team? Well, I think it's twofold. One is it's picking the right people. Um, you have to be very careful about who you choose. There has to be a great deal of trust, and you have to pick people who you think can do the job. And you're not always right. Um, frankly, one of the other things that you have to be able to do is recognize someone who cannot do the job. And, and part of the tough part of being a supervisor is telling that person that they just can't be here or they can't be in that role. But once you identify the people that you can, can trust and that you think have the capability to do what you, you want them to do, you've got to give them the authority and the power to do that. And it's a, it's, it's, it's a lot of things. One of it has to do with self-confidence. If you are not confident in your own self, you will never delegate that authority. I find that one of the biggest problems many leaders of organizations have is that their own lack of confidence doesn't allow them to delegate. They really truly believe they're the only ones who can do the job. superhero complex. Exactly right. They're the only ones who can do the job or they're the only ones capable of doing it the right way. It's just not true. There are many people who are very, very capable. My my style, at least, has been to surround myself with people who I believe are very capable and then allow them to blossom, to really develop into leaders. And, and again, every time I've done that, it's worked out well for me because that person has become someone I can depend on, I can trust. And generally speaking, that's someone who has become a much better executive than if I had simply told them how to do or what to do, what they were doing. It's ultimately the Henry Ford model. I guess it, it is, it, to in some extent, except 
I mean, I think, and, I, and I'm not real familiar with Henry Ford's career, but I know that one of his philosophies had to do with, you know, the worker level person who really only needed to know a small portion of what they were doing and do it over and over again. I don't believe in that. I think it's very important that everyone be appreciative of the whole, that everyone know what the, what the target of the organization is and that we all pull towards that target. If you don't do that, if you have, in essence, the assembly mind uh, or the assembly line mantra, if you will, where everyone has a component part and all they need to know about is what they do. I don't think that works as well as having a group of people who are all pulling for the same objective and doing it in an intelligent, bright way. Each of us need all of us and all of us need each of us. That's right? per- that is actually a perfect way to put it. I, exactly. I didn't put it. It was Mr. Jim Rohn. Got to give him full credit. <laughs> so I really appreciate you taking the time to give us the full background on where you come from and your entrepreneurial journey thus far, let's get into CY Global today because I know that you have some very interesting technology that you're rolling out. You're going up against some pretty large competitors. I hate the word disruptive, but (laughs) join me in laughing at that. But it's one word that came to mind and comes to mind when I see what you're up to. So give us us the the 50,000-foot view of what you're up to today. Sure. Uh, CUI Global is a publicly traded company. We're on the NASDAQ. The uh, ticker symbol is CUI. And we have two business units, one of which is a relatively mundane commodities-driven business that that is really a, an electronics distribution business. And for years, that's what we originally bought. That company has paid the bills. It's It's not very sexy and it's not very exciting, but it's quite profitable and it tends to grow. 10 to 12, sometimes 14% year over year. So it's a nice little business. And, what, and what's the day-to-day execution of that business exactly? What do they do? Sure. They really deliver component electronics into the electronics industry, mostly power supplies, about 60% power supplies, and and every kind of component you can possibly imagine. We have 20,000 separate SKUs. We service 74,000 customers. So it's a broad product base with a broad customer base, which gives us some protection from uh, uh, economic downturns. But it is, it is, like I say, not really the, the growth engine and certainly not the, the oil or rather the gas portion of the company that we feel is much more exciting, which is the second business unit. And that second business unit is under the, the um, name of Orbital Gas Systems. We have a North American and a, a UK operation. And it's a company that's designed to provide, in essence, integration work for the gas industry. In the UK, as an example, we provide integration to the largest utility companies in uh, Great Britain, including National Grid, Wales and West, Scotia, all of the big uh, midstream carriers, uh, transmission companies, primarily, although some distribution. And what we do is we provide everything from uh, small um, metering skids that would be working out in the remote areas of Ireland or Scotland to large biomethane terminals that would uh, put uh, biomethane gas uh, from large uh, um, farm cooperatives um, or breweries into the uh, into the national grid system, um, we have mirrored that um, in the U.S. in a much smaller phase. If you look at uh, if you look at what we do in the U.K., that's probably almost a thirty million dollar a year business. In the U.S., it's we just started the uh, operation uh, last year, January fifth of uh, twenty fifteen. It did about four million dollars last year. We expect to do six to eight million dollars this year. But in both cases, it's an integration-based company. On top of that, what we've done is really laid over a products company, a product sales company that is marketing and and productizing three very exciting um, technologies into the gas industry. 
two of which are truly industry shifting, and one of which we, we believe is going to be quite popular, has been quite popular in Europe and will be quite popular here. That's where the real growth in this company is, is in that energy division or gas division. The, the so what division. are those three products then? The product, uh, the one that's, uh, that is just now starting to hit the market in Europe is a, a, a product called Iris, which is an advanced information telemetry system. Basically, it remotely controls the pipeline. Uh, we're selling it now to the uh, to National Grid. Um, it is really new to the market, though, and probably 18 months to two years away from really dramatic growth. The really two growth areas that we've uh, been working on for the last almost five years is the gas PT analyzer, which is a very quick, very accurate method of measuring gas quality in the pipeline, and the associated VE technology, which is a probe technology, which allows us to put a penetration into the pipeline, uh, no matter what the, uh, the size of the pipeline uh, and no matter what the pressure of the pipeline, we were able to put that probe in with no uh, effect from uh, the vortex, which basically tends to weaken a probe by applying back and forth pressure on it. We've designed a probe that, that eliminates that vortex, thus VE technology, vortex elimination, which allows us to put probes, sampling systems, thermal wells into the pipeline without any of the issues that vibration generally causes. We don't have any vibration. So it's and what's the outcome you're looking for when you're doing that probe? Sure. The outcome is, number one, eliminating the need to change the probes every year or two years, so they, otherwise they break off. And also, it's a very quick, very clean method of sampling the gas. Unlike traditional sampling systems that take a large amount of gas up through a very large nozzle that needs a considerable amount of filtration and tends to obscure the ability to really detect trace elements, our probes bring a very small amount of gas from the center of the pipeline and can deliver that gas in less than two seconds to an analyzer outside the pipeline, which means the gas is it doesn't have to be filtered because it's such a small amount, and the trace elements are very easy to detect. Trace elements like mercury, moisture, H2S, elements that can be critical uh, to a refinery or to a LNG terminal, which are very difficult, if not impossible, to, to detect using standard sampling systems. And I know that we have a lot of petroleum engineering students, a lot of neophytes like myself that listen to this show. Can you break it down a little bit further in terms of what is the value of getting that level of monitoring? It, you want to make sure you're getting quality gas from the, from the terminals that you're allowing how does this work? Yeah, there's two two questions there. For the sampling is is one issue, which we talked about briefly. The, really, the, what you're talking about, though, is the gas PT analyzer. The analyzer, historically, for the last 60 years, gas has been measured quality-wise by the same technology. It's never changed. You can put uh, chrome on it. You can make it smaller. You can make it digital on analog, but it's still the same device. It's called a gas chromatograph. That's how the gas companies monitor the quality of gas. And that's so important to them because, think about it, billing, which is the most important thing gas companies do, is is comprised of British thermal units. You don't bill gas like you bill water. It's not how much gas you get. You bill gas more like how you bill electricity. It's how much energy you get. That energy is two components. One is volume, how much gas you get. And the other, the denominator, if you will, is energy content, the calorific value of that gas. Currently, today, to measure that calorific value is a 30-minute process. What you do is you take the gas out of the pipeline, you decompress it using a gas conditioning unit that then transmits to a gas chromatograph that takes 20 minutes to analyze it, gives exact chemical composition of the gas to the operator who then infers the calorific value. Not only is that gas chromatograph expensive, about $250,000 installed, and expensive to operate, about $13,000 a year, it requires intense 
um, maintenance. It has to be calibrated two or three times a week. It requires carrier gas, calibration gas. And after all of that, it's terribly inaccurate because it's taking 30 minutes to analyze gas, which is traveling down the pipeline about 60 miles an hour, which means when you finally know what the gas is that you're analyzing, it's 30 miles downstream. Hmm. And you've got to relate it back to a gas flow meter that operates on a second-by-second basis. Our device does this. It allows the operator to pull the gas directly out of the pipeline and allows that operator to receive an accurate measurement of the calorific value in less than five seconds, so almost real time. In fact, for um, some of the applications, we've gotten it down to under three seconds. So literally almost real-time analysis of the gas that allows you to be very accurate when you put that denominator, that CV, over that numerator, the volume of the gas. That's number one. Number two is our device costs not $250,000 in six weeks to install, it's $55,000 and installs in less than 90 minutes. It requires no carrier gas. It requires no maintenance whatsoever. In fact, we have certain uh, units that have been out in the field for as much as 12 and 13 years that have never required a single bit of maintenance and are still error-free. So I can tell you with great confidence, it's a device that will revolutionize the way the gas is measured, simply because it's cheaper, faster, and much more accurate than what's available now. Now, the problem, and you're going to say what I said when I first got this technology. Why aren't people beating a path to your door trying to buy this device? Well, the problem is that, that you're trying to get people who have done it the one way, always, it's this is how it works, and we've done it this way forever, even though they might save how many thousands of man hours and how many thousands of dollars, you're, you're dealing with a, an industry of technological laggards that are slow to move, and there's several reasons for it because, you know, one of the biggest reasons if people make mistakes in this industry, people die. That That is a big problem. But I just think that maybe the age of some of the decision makers probably plays into it as well. You are, you are definitely in the industry, I can tell you right now. I can't tell you how many times I've sat across the table from an engineer <laughs> holding my technology saying, wow, this sounds great. It's fantastic. But I got to tell you something. No one's ever been fired for buying a gas chromatograph. Yeah, it's the old IBM line, right? <laughs> exactly Nobody has right. ever gotten fired for buying IBM. That's exactly right. And it's interesting because it's 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 a it's inertia that's been difficult to overcome. And and frankly, this last um, big contract that we signed with the Italians, I think, will help us dramatically to overcome that inertia because they have been become the first pipeline company that has broadly adopted the technology. We are, we've delivered 150 units to them so far. The total deployment is over 7,000 units. And I think we will show people just exactly what happens when you really do know what the asset is, what the value of that gas is in the pipeline. And just to clarify, the product we've been talking about this whole time, is it the probe? No, this is the analyzer, this the is gas the, PT. The, the, the iris? No, no, the gas the, PT. The gas PT. Correct. All right, then what is the iris uh Advanced info telemetry. Yeah, um, <laughs> Give me a it, rundown on that it, quick. It's, it's simply a method of controlling the pipeline that's quite different. We uh, have a great relationship in the UK with National Grid. They came to us about four years ago and said, look, what we have today is archaic. We rent um, IT technology from a third-party vendor who allows us to monitor our own stations with their, in essence, leased equipment. And what happens when something goes wrong at a station, there's an alarm that rings in Warwick, which is where the head of the, the system sits. He sits in front of a console that has the entire system on it. And as you may or may not know, the alarms on a system that big are very 
uh, complicated because what you don't want is just simply a red cascade of alarms so that a guy ends up with a board full of alarms and has no idea how to respond. So the filtering system is quite significant. And what happens is a fault will go off at a remote location. He'll get an alarm at that location. And back then, and, and what happens now in the U.S. all over is he'll pick up the phone. It could be one in the afternoon or one in the morning. He'll pick up the phone, call a technician who's close to that location and say, look, I've got a fault at uh, station 40. Go out there and find out what's going on. That technician will get in his car or truck. He'll drive out to that location. He'll punch in a code to what, uh, what is a very archaic and non-dynamic, almost a DOS-style text system, which will tell him, alarm at valve 17. He'll take his toolbox. He'll walk out to valve 17. He'll hope he has the spare part. He'll take it apart and hope he's able to fix it, really not knowing what he's looking for until he gets out there. What our system does is, is it's much more dynamic, and it, it works this way. Today in the UK, on 105 locations, if that same technician gets that same call at 1 o'clock in the morning telling him that there's a problem at Station 40, if Station 40 has one of our iris devices, he can get on his laptop, on his smartphone, on his iPad. He can punch in a code and get a web-based schematic of what is going on at that location. He can actually tap on one of the bow ties, which represents a valve or on a, uh, a device that represents a uh, metering station. He can pop it up and he can open it and close it remotely. He can tap a configure tab that will give him a diagnostic of what's wrong with it. So if he has, for example, a fault at valve 17, he can tap that diagnostic and it will tell him what's wrong with it and what it needs to get fixed. Moreover, if it's one o'clock in the morning, he can shut off valve 17 maybe shut off the two valves that are going to that, open up a bypass valve, and he can simply bypass the problem. So instead of having to get in his truck and drive out... I, I was just thinking, he's, he's still at his house now. Still at his house. Has not removed. Probably it's still in bed. In his jammies, on the iPad. Exactly. He can then call that director back in Warwick and say, look, I've taken care of the problem temporarily. I know what needs to be done to fix it. I'll go out there in the morning when it's light, when it's not snowing, when it's not raining, whatever, and I'll take care of it knowing that I have proper equipment and the proper replacement parts. That's unheard of in the industry. It's very different. And most significantly, it's not a third-party vendor-operated uh, system. They own it. We put it on their um, server uh, bay. They, it's behind their firewall, so it's as secure as the rest of their system, and they love it. Now, they, we are rolling that out in the UK right now because it's a big commitment, um, and we, we expect to roll that out in the US um, in the next year or two. So... I'm sold. <laughs> I'm sold. I'm ready to sign on the line, which is dotted. I got to ask, though, where did the transition within your company? One of the things that my dad was in sales when I was growing up, and I don't remember what tape he was listening to, but I, it always, and I don't even remember how old I was, but this saying, if you want to be successful in life, find a hole in the market and fill it. How did you find these holes and how did you develop this IP to go to go about solving these problems? We didn't develop it. Actually, again, an interesting story among many. Um, we got the technology referred to us by a company that was uh, associated with us in Oregon. It was a little company out of Beaverton, Oregon, uh, called uh, TPI. It was a test and measurement company. They had a UK uh, subsidiary. And that UK subsidiary um, had become involved with a very, very large company in the UK uh, called DNVGL. In fact, it's the largest energy consulting company in the world. Um, DNVGL had bought um, the R&D division of British Gas when British Gas was privatized about 11 years ago. 
as many big companies do, I guess, they bought this division uh, for some reason, but not for the products that they acquired. In fact, they didn't even pay attention to it for four or five years. People but, were just clocking in, clocking out. Exactly right. 300 engineers, a beautiful facility, and a, and a huge amount of research and development. Apparently, about five years ago, they told a licensing uh, director to go down to uh, Loughborough, which is where it is in the UK. Look at what we bought when we bought that facility. If there's something there to license, license it. If it isn't, then you know, just get rid of it, close it down. Well, we happened to get involved with that licensing uh, director who had this very unique technology. We thought very, very valuable. In fact, I thought it was industry shifting. It certainly made sense to me. And at the time we acquired it uh, from them, they understood it was a, a potentially big product, but they don't do products. They're a consulting group. They make, you know, they, they currently do around $26 billion a year in revenue. They have 19,000 employees and they didn't want to do something outside of what they found. But a lot of the time, if it's the engineer, they, the, 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 Hey, I built this thing, but I don't know how to sell it. Exactly right. Exactly right. And not only that, I'm not interested. In yeah. Selling. I don't, I could care less about some of the right, damn things. Right. So it was interesting. We got the technology, and, and actually that's what spurred us to, to buy Orbital in 2013 and to really develop a, a gas division or an energy division. We had the technology. I acquired it because I felt it was an electronic metering device. We're an electronic company, and we could sell this. The problem was um, it was a very standard system. I had When we acquired the technology, we also got the engineer who helped invent it. He was a very bright guy. 37 years with uh, British Gas, so very, very involved in the industry. And we would go, he and I generally, to these meetings where we would meet with the top level of many, many different pipeline companies. Kinder Morgan here in the U.S., El Paso Gas at the time was still independent. We went and saw them, saw Williams. And we would sit down with these guys and we would say, look, here's what we have. We have this incredible little analytic device that will measure CV accurately in less than five seconds. And they would look at it and go, impossible. We'd say, no, it's possible. Here, let me let you have one. You test it. And when you're confident that it does what we say it will do, let us come back and we'll talk to you. And they would do that. And in each case, we came back, always the same response. Wow, this is incredible. It does do exactly what you said it would do. Now, tell me, what does CUI do in the gas industry? And, of course, the silence was deafening because we didn't do anything in the gas industry. And what I discovered at that point— That's not helping you. If you don't know this industry, if you don't know the culture, if you don't know the people— it don't matter what you're doing. That's they right. ain't buying. That's right. They, if you are not a gas industry person, then they don't want to talk to you no matter what your technology is. So what happened is, realizing that, we had partnered with Orbital because Orbital had, at the time, the VE technology, which made our device that much faster. So an opportunity arose to buy Orbital. We bought Orbital. Uh, we now had a gas presence. And now I understand it because what I didn't understand is what, what we bought when we bought Orbital was not just a gas company. We bought the engineering talent, the 24-hour helpline, the uh, ability to create and uh, and uh, solve problems that we didn't have as an electronics company. We and, had that as a and gas you can't, company. You can't, you cannot overestimate the price of the wisdom in the engineering minds that you have in that acquisition. Well, absolutely. You can't overestimate that. And the other thing, you, you hit at it at the, at the top of the show. When you're in an industry where a mistake can cause people to be vaporized. You're very cap- very careful about what you put on that pipeline. And, and you should be very careful. And so f- to buy something from a company that is not a gas-centric company, someone who is not involved in the gas industry, I understand the risk there. And I understand now, which I didn't understand then, why a gas company would hesitate to buy something, no matter how good it was, from a company that was not gas-centric. Well, we are gas-centric now. Well, you've made it to the oil, oil and gas this week podcast. So 
I mean, big, big, big accomplishment in your career. I'm sure just a huge notch on your, on your belt there. I'm getting to be successful. I can say. <laughs> um, if anybody wanted to reach out to you personally or find out more about what y'all are up to, where would you send them and tell them what to do? Well, first of all, I, as you can probably tell, I'm very enthusiastic about the company, and I, I, I make myself very available. You can get a hold of me or get more information on the company by going to the company's website, and that is cuiglobal.com. So it's all one word, cuiglobal.com. My contact information is there. You can see uh, presentations that talk about the technology. You can see videos of me talking in front of groups, explaining the technology. It's a very vibrant, very uh, user-friendly site. And again, if you look there and you have a question that you don't find answered there, you have my contact info. I welcome emails. I think even my, my cell phone's on there. And again, I do answer both emails and, and calls. The transparency is, is, is phenomenal. I hope that your influence spreads throughout the industry rapidly because we need more guys like you around. Uh, in the meantime, I really appreciate you stopping by. I know that quite a big portion of our audience is in the UK. So, hey, anybody, if you're in the UK and you're not buying things from Bill, hit him up. And, <laughs> and I think the sun is out now, and I'm going to let you go enjoy the rest of your day in Houston. I'm going to do that. I'm going to go out to that warm, humid weather and love it. Thank you. <laughs> thanks so much. Yes, thanks for stopping by. Thanks for listening to this point five episode of the Oil & Gas This Week podcast brought to you by Red Wing. You can find the show notes for this episode, which include links to everything we talked about and Bill's contact information at tribrocket.com forward slash T-W-C-U-I. You can also leave any comments you have about this episode there, which is tribrocket.com forward slash T-W-C-U-I. Join us again next time when we talk to Eric Fidler, president of Intech Process Automation, about how to successfully deploy new technology across the oil field. And when as an executive, you're deciding to invest in tools to make your operation more efficient. You need to create an environment where people want to use the tools. And it's through getting people on board by goal alignment, and it's also in empowering them to succeed through training. And both pieces are required. Until then, go find some grease, guys.